Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading today is from Matthew 11:27 to 12:27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they stuck him on the, struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him. Who say, that there is, who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, 
but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. I pray that you have prepared us for this word. Your word does not return void. Your word is holy and deserves our attention. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that you give us focused minds, yielded to your spirit, to be worked upon this word for this occasion. And Father, I pray that you would give me fidelity today, that I would preach the word that has been illuminated, that it be your word and not my own. Accompany it with grace and truth, that it may honor you and not return void. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, as I shared one other time, uh, in high school, my uh, primary extracurricular activity was debate. I loved to be in debate, to, to get into a room, uh, to argue, to match wits with another group of people, uh, because I usually won. And that is a deeply satisfying experience to triumph uh, with your wits. And uh, there was one person, uh, there's a, a sad story about debate judges. Uh, they're they're, they're drawn, brought in from the, the sticks uh, to, to judge these young people when they're debating. And they usually you know, have no experience. But I ended up having this one judge who judged me over several years. And after my debate career was done, I ran into him. And uh, he said to me, uh, these sweet words. He said, every time he saw me debate, he said, you are the smartest guy in the room. I love those words. Never heard them since. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the smartest guy in the room. Uh, that's, what I think, what we see going on in, in this passage. Uh, we see people coming to Jesus with the assumption that they are the smartest guy in the room. That instead of coming to Jesus to know him and to learn from him, they come to Jesus to wage their wits with him. I think that that is something that many of us, whether we want to admit to it or not, do in our hearts. We want to deal with God with our wits. We want to come to God with arguments, with questions, with doubts. We have accusations. How, God, could you have done this? How can you be a good God and have this happen? 
We want to come to God with disguises. Is there a way that we can get God to look down on us and accept us, but still not be his? We come to God with loopholes. We say, well, there's this scripture over here, and there's this scripture over here, and it confuses me, so clearly there is no scripture to govern my behavior on this question. Or we try to trap God with, with puzzles, with riddles. How can you be this way? Today's passage warns against coming to God trying to be the smartest guy in the room. Today's passage shows us what happens when the smartest people in Jerusalem came to have their day with Jesus, and he shows us what a foolish errand that can be. Our context is Jesus has come to Jerusalem. We saw a couple weeks ago that he has entered the temple. He has overturned the money changers. He has cleared out uh, and cleansed the temple in an act of judgment. And of course, that judgment shows, it casts a shadow over everything else in the book of Mark. We recognize that in Jerusalem is going to be a fateful climax. Jesus has said three different times, when we get to Jerusalem, this is going to happen. I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of men. I'm going to be delivered over to the Romans. I'm going to be killed and three days rise again. So we know that crisis is right here. And it was that temple judgment that we saw just two weeks ago that catalyzes these leaders of Israel. If you look back at Mark chapter 11, verse 18, after Jesus has cleared the temples, he says this, Mark says this, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. That is the context, that is the underlying motivation that exists in all of these encounters that we're dealing with today. And as we read in this passage that the scribes and the uh, uh, priests and the rulers and the elders uh, have come up to Jesus, we should have in our mind uh, ringing what Jesus told us in Mark 8.31, that when they got to Jerusalem, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And here they come. Here are the the priests, the elders, and the scribes ready to have their day with Jesus. And so what is happening in this passage in all three of these encounters are maneuvers that these different leaders of Israel are trying to uh, get Jesus into a compromised position, get Jesus to admit something that they can bring charges to, get Jesus on the horns of a dilemma that will require him to receive judgment or condemnation or opposition from the people. But Jesus doesn't come with his hands tied. Jesus has counter moves. In each of these encounters, we're going to see Jesus outsmart and outwit the people who think they can bring to Jesus uh, an unsolvable problem. And the biggest maneuver that is happening in this passage is this. The leaders of Israel, the people who are supposedly the heirs of, of the kingdom of God, are being uh, fooled and are being taken away from the kingdom because the kingdom is now being given to others. So as these leaders come with all of their, 
their, their arguments. What is actually happening is Jesus is discrediting them and taking away what should have been theirs to give it to others. There are new heirs being, uh, that, are, that are being raised up for the kingdom because the present heirs, these leaders of Israel, of Jerusalem, are not fit. This passage is certainly exciting. And I think one way we can read this passage is just kind of with popcorn. Kind of look at what those uh, fools have done. Look at how they're, they're, they're being bested by Jesus. But I think it is better to read this in an instructive way. As we look at what Jesus does to these heir apparents, as he exposes their foolishness, uh, their hypocrisy, their misguidedness, we should ask ourselves alongside them, do we belong to the heirs of the kingdom? Or are we coming to Jesus with similar approaches? Perhaps you come here today and you're feeling beat. Perhaps you are feeling trapped. Perhaps you feel like the world has outsmarted you and you have come up the loser again and again and there is no way for you to ever experience victory. I think then as we look at these different encounters, we see great encouragement and hope for the person that is feeling defeated and overwhelmed and outwitted. Because if you find yourself in Jesus, you're with the smartest guy in the room. And you will overcome whatever the world tries to do to put you down. So, who are the true heirs of Christ's kingdom? As we go through this passage, I believe we'll see four profiles of the true heirs of the kingdom. Go through these profiles to examine yourself. Go through these profiles to encourage yourself. Go through these profiles to consider which do you belong to. Let us now look at that very first profile. The first profile of the true heir of Christ's kingdom is not the self-preserving, but the submissive. The first profile of a true heir of Christ's kingdom is not the self-preserving, but the submissive. And we see this as we look at uh, chapter 11, 27 to 33. Jesus has just finished the clearing of the temple. He has just brought... Uh, uh, his judgment upon the corruption of the temple and these uh, people, the priests, the scribes, the elders who collectively make up the court of, of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, come to him. They are, they are the official leaders. They are the ones with real authority. They are the ones who rule over the temple. That, this is their turf. And they are greatly offended at Jesus coming and trying to overturn their turf. The, the, the priests and the scribes and the elders, they're the people in the culture that have the power. Legitimately, they have the power. This is, this is who is supposed to have the power. But with that power, they have prestige. And they have security. They uh, are comfortable because they are the priests, the scribes, the elders. They are the ones who have authority. And so when Jesus comes, this, this prophet from the north comes down and starts overturning the temple, he has come into their court and he has come challenging their authority. And the crowds are right around him, are excited, are celebrating Jesus. So you can imagine the threat 
that this presents to their power and their prestige and their security. And so what do they do when they see Jesus coming and calling them to account for turning the temple into a den of robbers? Do they repent? Are they cut to the heart? Are they, oh my goodness, it's, it's the Lord who has come to his temple finally in the fulfillment of prophecy. Let us respond with repentance. Let us lead the people by rending our, our garments and repent. That was the role that these people were supposed to fulfill. They were given a position of authority to point and prepare Israel for the day that their Lord visited the temple. But they don't do that. The great tragedy is that rather than submitting to their Lord when they experience the threat of his presence, they double down into self-preservation. They take Jesus as a threat and they decide that they are going to match wits with him rather than submit. So they set a trap. They encounter Jesus in the, in the temple grounds And together they ask him, by whose authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do what you were doing? You see, the the, the question sets up a dilemma, an impossible dilemma. Jesus can either go ahead and say, well, I am doing this by the authority of God. I I am the Messiah. Well, if he does that, Then the scribes, the elders, and the priests now have a political insurrectionist that they can get the Romans involved with. They can deal with him through through, through bringing him to the Romans. If he says anything else, if Jesus says anything but my authority comes from God, I am the promised Messiah, then his authority is illegitimate. There's no grounds for his ability to clear the uh, the temple except given by God. And if he's acting with illegitimate authority, then he is under their rule and their judgment. And more than that, he is embarrassed in front of the people, showing the people that he is not the one. He is not the promised one. He is somebody else. He is a pretender. So you see what the the question does. Either way, Jesus will be condemned. He'll lose the support of the crowds and become the subject of the Sanhedrin. Or he'll become the subject of the Romans as somebody seeking to take the kingdom. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is between either saying the only answer that can, can uh, give him the rightful authority, the truthful answer, or, or he, he can say nothing and therefore be condemned. These are smart guys, right? I mean, they put Jesus really on the horns. But then it's turned on them. We look at 11, 29, and 30. Let's read those words again. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus, of course, is talking about John the Baptist, who was baptizing at the beginning of Mark's gospel, who was baptizing for repentance. He was baptizing without the permission or the authority given to them by the the temple guard. And so the question is taken back a step. Jesus, instead of answering the question, uses another question 
to reverse the situation on the leaders. And what this question does is it exposes and reverses the trap that was set for Jesus. Because as we see in verse 31 and 32, they can't answer this question without major consequences. In verse 31, they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, their self-preservation is exposed. They recognize that they are going to lose face or they are going to lose authority if they say either from heaven or from man. And so they choose to say nothing. Their self-preservation is exposed. They are driven by the fear of man. And so they will not say uh, the truth. They will say anything but the truth. More than that, Jesus has effectively discredited them as the spiritual leaders of Israel because he has is, he is shown that the scribes and the elders and the priests, the people that are supposed to know the word of God and know the plan of God, cannot identify whether a prophet is a true prophet or not. They don't know. So in, in their silence, as the commentator uh, David Garland said, they must admit They cannot tell the difference between what is from God and what is from man. They have just discredited their legitimacy in their silence. So Jesus proves himself to be the smartest guy in the room. But I think it's important for us to think about what the the, the rulers of Israel are doing here. It's not a question about authority. It's a question about self-preservation. They see Jesus as a threat. If Jesus continues to march and his crowds continue to grow, then their way of life is threatened. And so the thing that they are most threatened about with Jesus initially is their self-preservation. They will no longer get to have the power and the prestige and the security if they make room for Jesus. And there's a lesson here for us. There's a principle here for all of us to grasp, uh, grapple with. Self-preservation pulls us away from the kingdom. Now, when I talk about self-preservation, I am not talking about uh, self-preservation from uh, drowning in a car. Obviously, roll down the window and get out. The self-preservation I am talking about is the self-preservation of your way of life your right to rule yourself, your sense of autonomy, your sense of control about uh, what your life is going to be about. You see, self-preservation in that sense pulls us away from the kingdom. Why? How so? It's very basic. Our self-preservation is always being ruled by the fear of man. It is the fear of man, the fear of the crowds, the fear of people, the fear of their opinions that get in the way and that make us guard our self-preservation. Think about money. Money gives us self-preservation. 
So we are afraid to lose our money or have our money uh, taken from us. And so that causes us self-preservation. Think about our relationships, the sense of being loved or having someone in our life. We want to preserve that. We want to preserve the feeling of that. And so our fear of man makes us consider, well, maybe maybe I need to break the rules a little bit. Maybe I need to relax a little bit. Maybe I need to uh, permit myself to do things that the Word of God says I shouldn't do. Perhaps popularity. Perhaps popularity. Perhaps the, the, the in crowd wants to go somewhere, wants to do something, that if you do it, you are not going to be honoring the Lord. But your self-preservation says, I will go ahead and go. Preserving our success. Getting the deal at work. Maybe the, the right business deal just requires a little bit of a lie. A little bit of covering up some of the evidence. A little lack of forthrightness so that we can get the business. Well, that's self-preservation. And when we choose that, we are pulling ourselves away from the kingdom. Ultimately, self-preservation in this way will force us to reject Christ. These are Christ's words. Mark chapter 8, 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, i.e. self-preservation, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, i.e. submission and the gospels, will save it. You see, if we seek to gain the whole world but lose our soul, we are losers over and over. Self-preservation pulls us away from the kingdom. It's going to set us against Christ. He is going to become a threat to what we want. But the answer to this, what Jesus should have received, what Jesus uh, was due, was the leaders of Israel coming to him in submission to his authority. You see, when Jesus comes, the confession is always this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is is Lord. In the kingdom, we, we are His because we confess Jesus is Lord. And when our self-preservation in the crowd or with our money or with our business or with our success somehow gets in the way of our ability to say Jesus is Lord, we submit. Because the heart of being in the kingdom, the heart of following Christ is submitting to Him as Lord. But that is not what we see happening with the rulers of Israel, and it's a tragedy. All right, let's look at the second profile. The second profile that we see of the true heir of Christ's kingdom is this. They're not the presumptive, but the faithful. And here we look in detail at the, at the parable that Jesus speaks to the rulers of Israel. The the parable of the tenants, as it is often described. Notice that he is speaking to them, verse 12.1. This is is addressing the rulers of Israel. He's speaking to them the following parable. And as we look at the bottom of the parable, we recognize that they, they discern that this has been spoken against them. They are the people that are supposed to listen carefully. 
And so we have this parable of uh, a landowner who has a vineyard, but he, he goes away to a faraway land and he leaves the vineyard to tenants. It's a very beautiful vineyard. It's, a, it's an exceptional vineyard. It's, it's, it's got everything that it needs. And these tenants' job is to, is to work the land. And when the owner comes and says, give me some of the fruit of the land, the, the, the tenants are supposed to hand over a portion of the fruit. But instead of bringing the fruit to the owner, they take the messengers and they beat them. And they, they, they harass them. They throw them out. And some of them they even kill. Until there are no servants left to send. And the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my son. They will respect him. And, they, and the owner of the vineyard sends his son. And him they also treat shamefully. Killing and throwing out of the vineyard. So clearly there's a lot of allegory. There's a lot of symbolism in this parable. So for, for the sake of understanding it, let's decode it. Clearly the vineyard's owner is God. God owns this vineyard. Uh, the tenants are the leaders of Israel. They are the scribes. Uh, they are the, the priests. They are the, the people on the Sanhedrin. They are the tenants whose job was to work the vineyard to produce fruitfulness to God. The servants, the messengers that come to the vineyard, they represent the prophets of the Old Testament. Some of them uh, were abused. Some of them were killed but, but they were not listened to. And then finally, most transparently, the one and only Son, the beloved Son, is Jesus, who is now in front of them, and they have murder in their hearts. We already know their plan is to destroy Jesus. As we look at this parable, let us observe a couple things. First, God's patience How amazing is the patience of God in this parable? I mean, as you listen to this parable, servant after servant being abused and mistreated and no fruit being given to the owner of the vineyard, your patience runs out well before the sun comes. I mean, if this were your business, if this was your vineyard, and instead of receiving uh, obedience and the fruitfulness that, that these tenants are supposed to give, you instead received back harassed, killed, and shamed messengers? How many of those would you have to endure before you brought your army against the, the tenants of the vineyard and wiped them out? But instead we see Jesus sending, or we see God sending more messengers and more messengers. I mean, we cry out as we read this, judge them already. Throw them out already. Their time's up. They've they've exhausted your patience. They've exhausted any possible, reasonable mercy. Judge them. And yet, we see God showing his patience by sending yet another You see, what we see in this parable is that patience is God's love to the wicked. Patience is God's love to the wicked. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, God shows his patience to give as much opportunity to his wicked and sinful tenants to repent and show their obedience. His patience is is prodigal. 
Look at verse 6 of this parable. After all that has happened, after all of this mistreatment, verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. He sends his son to these wicked tenants who have shown absolutely no repentance, no sensitivity, no willingness to respond with fruitfulness. He's, it's the only one left, and it's his cherished son. And he says, because he is that full of love and patience and forbearance, I will send my only beloved son. Surely, they will respect him. He sends his beloved son to whom? To to murderers. To murderers. Here we see the most amazing truth of the gospel, Romans 5, 8, enfleshed or, 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 or shown in this parable. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, why did he send his son? Judgment was overdue. And yet he sent his cherished only son to reach us. So God's patience, is it amazing? It is amazing, but then look at the tenants' wickedness. Look at how the tenants respond to God's patience. Each messenger they get more and more rebellious with, more and more abusive to, killing several of them. How do they rationalize themselves? How do they come away thinking that they are possibly doing anything appropriate? Here's what they do. They act upon presumption. They are presuming that God will not, that the owner of the vineyard will not do anything. There will not be a judgment. There will not be any bad thing that happens to us. If we get rid of these messengers, we keep all the crops. The presumption is nothing bad will happen to us. And as they fix on that thought, their rebellion just increases and doubles and multiplies. They're smart guys. They said, we beat up the last one and nothing happened. We killed the next one and nothing happened. Let's just keep going. Let's take the vineyard by force. Smart guys. What sort of presumption do we see here? Is the the presumption upon God's grace? Perhaps. Romans 6.1 tells us that it is always a a favorite of, of, of sinners to presume upon God's grace. Paul tells us, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that, that grace may abound? I mean, how, how many times have, have we uh, toyed with the argument, well, God's going to forgive. So why not have a little extra fun tonight? I'll ask forgiveness tomorrow. I'll just presume upon God's grace. I know he has to forgive, so let's have a little more fun. So there's presumption upon God's grace, but I think if we look at this parable clearly, we'll see that the presumption is actually upon their own goodness, upon their own rights. 
Look again at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. The, the vineyard is bearing fruit, okay? But they don't want to give the fruit to the owner of the vineyard because they did the work for it. It's theirs. It's not going to be given to the owner of the vineyard. And then look at verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. You see, they think that if they can get rid of the heir, then they have rights to the, to the vineyard. They can have it by rights. They deserve it, and they're going to, to, to claim it. They are presuming upon their goodness, upon their rights to the vineyard. Now note this very carefully. How many of us are approaching God with the presumption that whatever is said by this preacher guy, I got to be okay. I got to be I got to be in. I mean, I am so much better than most of the people I know. I do everything right. I'm here at church for goodness sake. I'm here Listen to this guy. I got to be in. Hell can't be real. There, there's, there's no way that a loving God and, and, and a hell that never ends could possibly be there. God has to forgive. Even if I don't ask for forgiveness, isn't God so big that he'll just forgive, regardless of whether I live by faith or not? Now, these arguments ring in our culture. They are presumptive that God will not do what he said he's going to do, that he will not bring judgment upon the tenants. It is taking his patience and mercy for the window of repentance and instead turning it into an argument that there will be no judgment. It is presumption. What's missing in all of these? There's no love. There's no relationship. There's no faithfulness. The entire relationship with God is on presumption, calling his bluff. Is that, is that going to get you into the kingdom? No. God, the, 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 the tables are turned. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Answer that question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What should the owner of the vineyard do? Does anyone disagree that the owner of the vineyard needs to bring severe, swift, and complete judgment? Is there any question that that is just and deserved? We answer the question. Those who presume upon his grace will not have an excuse at the judgment day. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. You see, after his patience has come to an end, and the sad truth is God's patience does end, that the vineyard will be taken away. It will be given to others, and those wicked tenants will receive judgment. So who are the others? Who are the others? Well, the, the, the parable tells us who the right people are for the vineyard. They are those who respond to God's grace with faithfulness. And fruitfulness. That's the, that's the tenant that stays in the vineyard. The one who responds lovingly with the yield that is owed. 
and is faithful to the owner of the vineyard, even in his absence. So the question for us, the probing question for us, is are you presuming upon his grace? Or have you become faithful in response to his grace? The only ones that stay in the vineyard are those marked by faithfulness. Our third profile. Not the pretenders, but the genuine. The true heirs of Christ's kingdom are not the pretenders, but the genuine. And here we see yet another group. We see the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are working in cahoots with the the leadership because we see in verse 13 that the leadership they sent to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. Now the Pharisees come at it with a little bit different approach. They come at it with some tact. They try the good old approach of flattery. Listen to these words. They are They're just gorgeous. Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, they show so much flattery. You are a man of truth. You do what God says. You are always right. You don't don't, uh, 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 bend to the will of men. You are faithful and true. You are God's man. So tell us about taxes. What should we do with taxes? You see, they pretend to be with Jesus with their words. But they show in their motives and in their approach that their heart is far from them. Can we fool God with our words? Can we fool Jesus by pretending to be his? These are smart guys trying out flattery and pretending. And they do that to set this trap about taxes. Now, obviously, taxes are always difficult, but the the, the horns of the dilemma are the taxes are to the Romans. They represent the enemy. And the Messiah is supposed to be against the Romans. So what should Jesus tell these people about these Roman oppressive taxes? The crowds want to be told Don't pay the tax. So if Jesus says that, what's going to happen? There are many people that say don't pay the tax, that don't get in trouble with the law. No, the Romans are going to come down so hard against somebody that's speaking out against the taxes. But if Jesus says pay the taxes, then what's the crowd going to think? What kind of Messiah is going to make us pay to to the oppressors? What, what, what kind of guy is going to make us pay to the people we hate? Either way, Jesus is going to be condemned, either directly by the Romans or by losing support from the people. And yet Jesus shows he is the smartest guy in the room. He turns it around. He says, show me a coin. And they produce a coin, clearly out of one of their pockets. And he says, well, whose picture's on this coin? Well, that's Caesar. And so Jesus pulls out of the trap because they have a coin with Caesar's face on it. He says, then give it to him. If you're going to keep Caesar's money, then you give it back to him. They can't say anything 
They had the coin. So why are they not giving it to the person that they took it from? It's simple. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. So what is God's? They are. They are made in the image of God. And that's why verse 14 becomes so ironic in this passage, this this flattery that they speak of him. Verse 14 again says, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. You see, they were being uh, flattering, but the irony is they were speaking the truth. Jesus is bearing the image of God. He is a true human. He is a true human being. He is genuine. You see him and you know you are speaking to a man with integrity. He does not come with duplicity or hypocrisy. And so what ends up happening is they reveal that they are not giving to God what is God's because their hearts are full of duplicity. They're pretending fails. They're pretending to be in in allegiance with with Jesus, to be on Jesus' side, fails. It's unmasked. Jesus shows them, shows the world that they flatter me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Oh my goodness, there is a serious thing that some in this room need to recognize. God sees the heart. God is not going to say, well, he's been to church a lot. He's given money a lot. He sees the heart. He knows whether your heart is given to him or not. He knows whether your confession is genuine or not. It is not proven on whether you passed your membership questions by the session. It is going to have to be passed before God. God sees the heart. And without the heart given to God, you cannot be claiming yourself in the kingdom with integrity. Listen to Paul again in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If the heart isn't involved, if your confession isn't genuine from the heart, you're a pretender. And you might pretend, and you might make everyone to your left and your right and front and back think think great things of you in the kingdom. But God will look at the heart. And if you are here pretending, do not presume another day upon the grace of God. Repent and believe. The heirs of the kingdom are genuine. The fourth one, the fourth true heir of Christ's kingdom are not the sophisticated, but the trusting. Not the sophisticated, but the trusting are true heirs in the kingdom. And here we get the Sadducees. The Sadducees were part of the priestly class. They were very educated, very refined, uh, great thinkers, distinguished in their culture. And they were, they were hyper-conservative. They said the, the books of Moses are the only true books of the Bible. And so they, they only studied the books of Moses. They only followed the books of Moses. And they were very sophisticated. I mean, they, they, could, they could carry the conversation in any of the best dinner parties. They were the really smart guys. They're learned. They're philosophical. For them, Scripture is a great dinner topic. Yeah, they talk about it with abstraction. They, 
They, they talk about its intriguing ins and outs. They're always discussing, never deciding. They're very academic. Let us, let us chew on the word of, a little bit and ask questions about it. Mm, isn't that interesting? We'll talk about more of that tomorrow. They're sophisticated. They're so convinced of their intelligence that they do not believe the majority of Scripture. And so in their sophistication, they come to Jesus and they have found a great juicy trick right in the middle of the first five books of Moses. You see, there's this thing called Leverite marriage. If your husband dies and he has a brother, the brother is supposed to marry the woman and have children with him. So they say, okay, well, there's this guy. He's got, there's seven brothers. All of them apparently cannot get the deal done. Uh, and so this wife has all seven husbands. They die childless. And here's the thing. They're commanded to be married. So this woman has been commanded to be married by multiple men. And the, the whole thing is, if, if marriage is a covenant that cannot be broken, then when the resurrection comes, she's married to seven different men. So the whole idea is there can't be an afterlife, because if, if this law is true, then it, can, it contradicts an afterlife, which would make her married to seven men, which is a violation of, of the Bible. But we, we need to remind the Sadducees, it's till death do us part. Right? I mean, sometimes... That is the best thing we said on our wedding day, right? <laughs> Never forget it, right? No, I'm sorry. Sometimes we've lost, lost a sense of humor here. It's okay. Sometimes you can wonder how much longer. Uh, uh, anyway, so uh, they, they have this command of remarriage, but then resurrection would make that uh, impossible with the resurrection. So they say, uh, it, Moses clearly teaches against the resurrection. So here's the dilemma that they're putting in front of Jesus. Either uh, deny Moses by teaching the resurrection or lose teaching credibility by denying the resurrection because the resurrection was, was held by most. And so what does Jesus do? He turns this one more time and says, you don't know God's power and you don't know the scriptures. By reminding these most intelligent people in the room and all of their sophistication that they're, they're confusing their ignorance with intelligence. They have no idea what the resurrection is going to look like. They have no idea how God is going to reign the new ages, the new heavens, and the new, uh, the new earth. And so uh, Jesus reveals to them that this whole idea of marriage ends at death. And there's a whole different kind of existence, an existence that does not include marriage in the, the kingdom to come. Now, some of you might say, well, that just sounds like an awful place if I can't be married for people um, of that persuasion. No, so uh, just a reminder for, for what that means. It means that the, the joys of heaven, the joys of heaven are greater than the greatest joy in marriage. There will not, the fellowship that we have in heaven with everyone will be greater than our greatest fellowship we have on earth. And that's what is supposed to be understood by that. And then finally, Jesus goes to the, the books of Moses. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And what he is saying there is, if those words are true, God's promise cannot stop at death. God's promise is eternal, and if he's made his promise with an individual person in time, then that person cannot be brought ultimately to death. The promise of God has to uh, uh, call forth 
a resurrection. Otherwise, God's word is broken by the power of death. And as Jesus said, God is not a God of the, of the dead. He is a God of the living. And the Sadducees are shut up. So the sophisticated people are silenced. And it reminds us here that God is not a God of skeptics. He is a God of believers. He is a God not just of hearers of the word, thinkers of the word, considerers of the word, but of believers in the word. And so the question in front of you, in front of all of us, is have you believed in the risen Lord? Have you believed in the resurrection power of our God? So who are the true heirs of Christ's kingdom? They are those who forsake their self-preservation and submit to him. They are those who forsake their presumption and are faithful to him. They are those who forsake their pretending and are genuine toward him. They are those who forsake their sophistication and trust in him alone. Friends, there are no tricks. There are no arguments. There are no disguises. There's no victory by our wits. But the good news is that we don't have to have our wits to be saved. Let me finish by looking back at verse 1210. Jesus says at the end of that parable, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the greatest turn. This is the greatest maneuver. The rejected stone, the stone that was murdered by the tenants, the stone that is going to be murdered by all these actors in this story, is going to be murdered in, in triumph of the power of men, will become the victor. He will become the one who stands again through resurrection to declare to all people that the rejected stone has become the chief stone, has become the foundation of the people of God. Christ, by the murderous plots of the leaders, becomes the foundation, the only ground. How unsearchable is the wisdom of and power of God. And how unsearchable is his grace. Listen. The owner of the vineyard has given his only son to save us from wrath. If we reject this son, we have wrath. But thanks be to God, we have the son. Have you trusted in him? Have you believed in him? You have to make a decision. You have to trust in him personally. There is no other way. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.